Welcome back to another edition of the JDD podcast, Ask the Investigator. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Friedman from the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. This podcast is brought to you by EPI Health. We are very fortunate to have with us uh, a master of hair, Dr. Jerry Shapiro, who is a professor of dermatology at the Ronald Perlman Department of Dermatology at NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Shapiro is one of the most experienced hair dermatologists in the world and has specialized in hair disorders for over 25 years. He's in fact the first dermatologist in the world to exclusively restrict his practice to both medical hair and scalp disorders, as well as transplant surgery. He has published well over 150 peer-reviewed papers, including a review in the New England Journal of Medicine, multiple book chapters and books. He lectures all over the world in quite quite frequently, and uh, you can certainly catch them in the upcoming uh, annual AAD meeting in San Diego. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. My pleasure. So we're going to be discussing your paper in the November edition of the JDD entitled Novel Treatment Using Low-Dose Naltrexone for Lichen Plano Pilaris. I guess just to get started, what was the impetus for this? How did you even come across this idea? Um, I came across this idea from uh, patients who went to um, integrative medical specialists um, who were using naltrexone on various inflammatory disorders. And um, these, these were patients who had lichen planopilaris and we had tried everything, methotrexate, dapsone, um, Celsep, we tried almost everything and they, so they decided to go to integrative medical specialists. And um, this is something that they have used. It is used as an anti-inflammatory uh, in uh, multiple sclerosis as well as Crohn's disease. And I, uh, we, I had two patients who went uh, to these integrative specialists and they got some really good results. And so I decided, well, I'm gonna start using it. And I was getting some very good results in terms of reduction of inflammation and itch. Now, this was an IRB-approved study of four cases that you followed at your point had been failed numerous other treatments. How did you kind of approach that in terms of formulating an IRB? Because, you know, this, this was, you know, it, it comes across as a case series, but really it's, it's a study, even though the N is quite low. You know, this was a true clinical study. How did that, how did that impact how you formulate IRB? Did they come back to you with any concerns, you know, given obviously naltrexone has been around for quite some time, uh, though not often used at this dosage. Were there any roadblocks to getting that approval because of some unique circumstance? Because it was a retrospective study and not a prospective study, it, it, uh, uh, it did not really create such a big problem with the IRB. These patients had already been on this medication, and so um, they, they had really no problem. We reviewed the charts, and, um, and that's, how we did, uh, that's how we were able to publish the paper. Um, because the IRB gave us approval because it was retrospective. It's mm -hmm. a lot easier when you're doing studies rather than doing them prospectively, which can take so long and it can take up to two years to get approved by certain IRBs. If you do a retrospective study, uh, it's a lot easier. Now, the, the dosage you use, now tracks on three milligrams, is that readily available? Um, I, mean, I recall no. seeing a recent paper using this for Haley Haley, and they said they had to actually get it compounded. How did you guys get your hands on it? 
Okay, uh, we have a wonderful compounding pharmacy in New York City that was able to take the powder from uh, naltrexone, take it from the larger pills, which are, which can be 25 milligrams or 50 milligrams, and they were able to um, crush the pills and put them in capsule form. And so the patients were able to take a capsule of three milligrams uh, per day, and it really was only a dollar fifty um, per capsule. So it would only cost the patients forty-five dollars, thirty, you know, thirty-five to forty-five dollars to do this. So um, there was really no problem uh, with the cost, and as long as you have a good compounding pharmacy that knows how to, you know, put things in a capsule. So with these four patients, you know, you kind of look back retrospectively, you know, what, what were the key findings? What was your impression from, from their courses? There was a marked reduction in itch. There's no question. And naltrexone has been used in pruritus in dermatology, um, you know, um, not just for LPP, but for other things. There are um, chronic pruritic disorders uh, that it has been used in. So I'm not the first dermatologist to use it. In, uh, um, but they used it more for pruritus. Um, so um, we decided, well, let's try it now on something that's very itchy, which is lichen planopilaris. And, and it had had success with a couple of our patients from these other specialists. So we, we decided we were going to use more and more of it. And now I actually use a lot of it. That was actually my next question. Since, since publishing among these four patients, have you had more experience? Are you seeing kind of a, a repeat show every time that these patients are re noticing reduced you know, itch, that their inflammatory disease is, is kind of being curbs, curbed more so than with the other therapies? I, I think that it works in at least 50 to 60%. It certainly does not work in everybody. Uh, but I would say in at least half, we're getting some good results. So, um, uh, and sometimes I'll go to a higher dose. If they're big people, I go to 4.5 milligrams per day. I've never used more than um, 4.5 milligrams per day. But yes, I'm using it more and more. And now other, other colleagues of mine are using it because I've given talks worldwide and now they're using it. They know how to get the, you know, the, the pharmacist to make it for them and they're using it. Do you ever use it as monotherapy or you always find yourself you're using it in conjunction no. with plaquenil or pioglitazone? It's usually in conjunction. I have uh, I have used it in conjunction with Actos or pioglitazone. I've had some good results as one of the cases in this paper. And I didn't, um, injections weren't working. So many things weren't working. Doxy, plaquenil, all these things were not helping. And yet the, the, only these two worked. And I don't think naltrexone alone will do it. I think you have to add another, another drug like um, like pioglitazone, which is a P-par gamma agonist, which uh, which is important in, in, in uh, which may be a cause. Like the uh, the pathway is an important pathway when it comes to um, a cicatricial alopecia. Are you now? leaning more on, on, on naltrexone in terms of your first line? Obviously, you're, you're throwing a couple things at the patients when they first come in. Um, obviously, in these ca cases published, it was after the fact. Do you find you're now almost starting with this in combination no, with uh, another no. anti-inflammatory? No, I, no, I don't use it all the time. I'll use it when things aren't working. Okay, I'll use things, um, and my first line is always injections. 
um, of uh, trimcinolonacetinide, uh, 10 milligrams per cc for two cc's into the scalp 20 injections. I'll, I'll always use, um, I have something called TCM, T for tacrolimus, C for clobetazole, and M for minoxidil. Now, they're not all mixed together. They are separate. I'll use tacrolimus 0.3% in Cetaphil cleanser. That's my vehicle. i have the patient use that twice a day. After that, clobetazole solution, BID, and M minoxidil solution, 5%, and they layer it one on top of the other. So that's my topical therapy. So I always put everyone on that. That's my first slide. Then we'll try oral therapy. Frequently, doxy will be my first one, doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day. And then if that doesn't work, we may add Plaquenil 200 milligrams twice a day. And if all those things don't work, then we may add naltrexone. But it's not necessarily my first line. Now, to your point earlier about naltrexone being used for generalized pruritus, you know, itch without rash, I myself have used it, and it certainly works in some cases, though I find a lot of patients report very strange dreams. Have you experienced that with the lower doses with, with the patients you've treated? I haven't, but it is a reported side effect. Maybe possibly a dose dependent then, because obviously we're, we're talking about a, a much lower order of, of concentration with respect to the, the standard available dose of 50 milligrams versus obviously uh, three milligrams. Yeah, like vivid dreams, nightmares, headaches, increased anxiety, all have been reported. Um, but you know, it's with the low dose, I didn't see any of it. That's great. So, so what's the take-home message from this study? Uh, you know, both in terms of you know, you brought up such a good point before how it's so much easier to do a retrospective study that getting that approval and formulating and, and turning a case series really into almost a study. Um, you know, for those who are interested in doing these types of studies, but also just about naltrexone in general, what, what do you hope the listeners take home from this? Well, I think um, dermatologists should be aware that naltrexone uh, at low dose is anti-inflammatory. And if, you know, if conventional therapy doesn't work, then this is something they can try. Um, at three milligrams or 4.5 milligrams a day, it may definitely relieve some of the itch. And um, it's something in our armamentarium for lichen planopilaris now, as well as frontal fibrosing alopecia. And of course, you know, I think everyone, everyone wants to hear about is, you know, your approach clinically and, uh, you know, from, from a management diagnosis standpoint, which we will absolutely delve into after a word from our sponsor. So stay tuned. This podcast is brought to you by EPI Health, a specialty company with a focus on dermatology. Their goal is to bring you best-in-class skincare solutions for unmet medical needs. Currently, they bring you Nuvail, Cidavig, and Benzol HP. They are continually expanding their prescription product line to offer dermatologists like you and patients new and better options to treat skin conditions. And we're back with Dr. Jerry Shapiro, uh, who's talking with us about lichen planopilaris, frontal fibrosing alopecia, um, what's considered, I guess, somewhat of a rare scarring alopecia, but I feel like we're seeing so much more from month to month that it's not really that rare anymore. Um, I guess to start off from a, a practical perspective, um, I think one of the tough parts in identifying this disease, but also following it is looking for clinical clues that really highlight um, activity, you know, both when they first come in the door, when you're making that initial diagnosis, but also as you're treating them, 
what are some of those key clinical clues that guide you down this diagnostic road, but also in terms of following these patients over time to get a sense that the medication is actually working? Okay, first of all, um, the history is really important. The patient says they're <laughs> losing that much hair in that certain period of time, then, I mean, that's telling you it's very active. Um, and then uh, on, on clinical examination, um, I will photograph every patient with a, usually photo finder is my favorite um, uh, camera for this kind of thing. And then that also allows me to do trichoscopy at 70-fold magnification so I can look at hyperkeratosis and, um, and erythema and I can really magnify it and look at it on a large Apple screen, which I have in the office. Um, and so... Um, so that will tell me if, uh, how much activity there is by just looking at how much hyperkeratosis, how much erythema. Also, of course, we do the pull test to make sure that either the condition is less active. So um, also for something like frontal fibrosing alopecia, I will always take co um, coordinates from the outer canthus straight up to the hairline and measure it uh, from outer canthi to hairline as well as called bellet hairlines up three points. And if the sideburns are affected, which they usually are, then I'll take from outer canthus to the sideburn area as well. So I can have five points so I know, uh, you know what they are at baseline, how, how much recession there is. And every time they come in, we have these measurements. The patients expect this to be done. The patients also expect me to take pictures, very thorough pictures, and we compare the two. You can do side-by-side -side shots with photo finder, and we can compare whether there's any difference or not. Also, we use the uh, trichoscopy, 70-fold magnification, uh, and it's uh, nice to have a polarized lens so you really see it well, and then you can determine how much uh, erythema scaling that's there, if you see nothing and it's totally pristine, then you know you can start tapering your medication. You can start lowering the doxycycline, the Plaquenil, the frequency of application of the, uh, of the um, topical agents, as well as decrease the frequency of the injections. You may even wanna stop it if it's totally pristine. Now, now you bring up a good point about, you know, you're, you're taking these pictures, you're blowing them up, you're seeing that perifollicular hyperkeratosis and erythema. With that, with being able to visualize this, uh, you know, most people, if you ask, you know, how do you diagnose a scarring alopecia? Well, you know, you got to biopsy it. Do you think this could be, this could become a clinical diagnosis or even with that, you're still doing a biopsy, you know? And no, I don't need to do that. biopsy on, uh, on frontal fibrosing alopecia. It's so obvious most of the time that I don't need to do a biopsy because I see so much of it. It's become, in my clinic, it's, it was just as frequent as seeing psoriasis when I was doing general dermatology. You didn't biopsy every case of psoriasis. It was so obvious what it is. So when it comes to frontal fibrosing alopecia, to me, it's an obvious diagnosis. It's a waiting room diagnosis. But keep in mind, I've been in practice for a long time. And I, you know, I know, you know, I've seen a lot of cases for someone who's just starting, maybe a biopsy is necessary. But someone who's been in practice for at least 10 years uh, or even five years, they've seen enough of this. They know what this looks like. You don't need to biopsy every case of frontal fibrosing alopecia. Now, if you were to, because I think still, of course, as you mentioned, a lot of people are going to, I, I think there's a, a lot of uh, very adamant positions regarding how to do that biopsy, you know, four milliliter versus three millimeter providing vertical and horizontal sections. If one was to biopsy, 
what would be your recommendation for the proper technique? Okay, I now do the following um, for well, for if I'm questioning frontal fibrosing, which I uh, uh, alopecia, which I rarely question now. But if I have to do the biopsy, because sometimes it can mimic androgenetic hair loss, and you can't tell the difference. I do a four millimeter punch biopsy, um, uh, and then uh, I I have them do um, the uh, horizontal sections on them um, because our dermatopathologist is very uh, astute in recognizing lichen planopilaris in horizontal section. Others may not be, and they may want two biopsies, a horizontal and vertical um, uh, sectioning, which I don't really want to do. I don't want to subject the patient to two biopsies, especially in the front of the scalp. So I just do one. If I have to choose what kind, it's going to be horizontal sectioning and with a good dermatopathologist. Fortunately, at NYU, we have a very good one, Nushin Brinster, who is just wonderful at reading scalp slides, and she can tell me wh whether there are no sebaceous glands, how much inflammation there is, all these kinds of things which hint to a diagnosis of scarring hair loss. And for just regular lichen planopilaris, I, I simply only do one biopsy. I usually do not subject the patient to two. And I, it's almost always horizontal uh, sections, not vertical. Have you ever, because I know some people will recommend bisecting a four millimeter to get possibly provide both a horizontal option and a vertical. Yeah, you can do that. I, I used to do that. I don't do that anymore the, because you only end up with two millimeters of each and right. may not be enough. I want you might, more you might miss the I want the, the, the dermatopathologist to see more follicles. If I cut that biopsy in, a, in half, I mean, already I'm taking an alopecic area that has very few hair. So if I cut it in half, there'll be less hair even to look at. Right. <laughs> Good point. Um, now, earlier you started to mention your therapeutic approach um, before kind of delving a little deeper into your selection. Is there anything about the clinical presentation that pushes you down one kind of combination of therapies versus another when you see the patient for the first time? Um, it all depends, of course, on the extent of the condition, how active it is. There are so many different variables. Most people come to me with extensive active disease. Um, a third of my practice is lichen planopilaris and frontal fibrosing alopecia. It's at least a third, if not 40%. So I just, uh, I, uh, I see how active it is, and most people are active by the time they come to me. And so I will give everyone injections, and frontal fibrosing alopecia, they get Kenalog, 2.5 milligrams per cc, not 10, because it's near the face. We'll go one centimeter behind the hairline and do three cc's or 30 injections of 0.1 cc each. One, as I said, one centimeter behind the hairline, not in front of the hairline, because you're not going to regrow hair. Those hairs are dead. Uh, those follicles are dead. So what you need to do is go behind the hairline and preserve. The most important thing that I tell patients is, preservation, follicular rescue. That's what we're doing. Regrowth is not going to happen. It's very unlikely in lichen planopilaris and frontal fibrosing alopecia are going to get regrowth. We're trying to save the hair. And so that's, how we, that's why we do it a centimeter behind the hairline for frontal fibrosing. Now, sometimes frontal fibrosing is not just frontal. It can be circumferential. And then we have to do another... Um, 
another uh, th three cc's to the back of the scalp as well. And many of these patients also have concomitant lichen planopilaris in the central portion of the scalp. And then we'll use 10 milligrams per cc, two cc's, 20 injections of 0.1 cc each. So everybody gets injections. Then they use the tacrolimus combination, 0.3% Cetaphil cleanser, BID. They use that in combination with uh, clobetazole solution, BID, and minoxidil 5% solution, BID, and have them use that twice a day as well. And then, and then you, and then some people don't want oral therapy if they. If they're ready for, if I really think it's that active, they should go on doxycycline or Plaquenil or a combination that's very active. Um, if it's frontal fibrosing alopecia, we may add finasteride as well, five milligrams per cc, assuming they're uh, uh, they're not going, um, they're older women who are not going to have um, babies. Um, we always warn everyone about pregnancy and all this kind of stuff because um, uh, it's teratogenic. But we also use finasteride or dutasteride as well at 0.5 milligrams per day. Do, do you ever find yourself using um, spironolactone in, in women of childbearing years in place of finasteride? I use spironolactone all the time for androgenetic alopecia. I have not used it for scarring alopecia. It may work in scarring alopecia too, but there aren't enough studies or literature out right. there for spironolactone. That you know, or bicalutamide, which is another androgen antagonist, or um, something called ciprovarone acetate, which is not available in the states but ev available everywhere else in the world. It's an antiandrogen. So we don't really know how well they work on frontal fibrosing. But dutasteride and finasteride have been published, and so we do use it. Spironolactone, though, is very useful in androgenetic hair loss. You know, you definitely use it a lot there. In Question about the doxycycline. You know, I noticed especially from the paper and our and from our discussion, you know, you use 100 milligrams twice a day. Do you yeah. find yourself ever dropping down to the you know 40 milligrams once a day controlled release, or the doxycycline 20 milligrams twice a day to more go for that sub antimicrobial dose, or you find that that just doesn't cut it? No, I, I it may work. Um, however, I want. Um, if they can tolerate 100 milligrams twice a day, I will give them 100 milligrams twice a day. If they have problems, I will then give them the slow release 40 milligrams. Uh, I'll try other ones, but it doesn't seem to work as well as the 100 uh, twice a day. And of, of course, patients always ask if you're going to give them these, these oral medications, especially, you know, how long am I going to be on them for? How do you counsel patients on that? Because I, I personally, I don't have a great answer. It's more one word to follow you. On it. I tell them they may be on it for years. Yeah. Okay, we don't know how long. We don't know when this will go into remission. But a lot of patients who have FFA, for instance, after maybe two years, we can start tapering things very well. And um, and then they can go off things. But some people, you can't. They're on it for years and years. I've followed people for five, seven years with FFA. They have to keep on coming in for the injections, the um the the uh, the topicals the oral they you know some people you can't stop it because when you stop it they get worse. Do you in that case let's say you're you're thinking about stopping and the patient's doing well, do you stop them kind of cold turkey or you have them kind of titrate down maybe going from that hundred twice a day to forty once a day or hundred twice a day to fifty twice a day kind of go down or you feel like if they're ready you could just stop them. No, I never stop abruptly. I taper all the time. Injections will go from once monthly to every second month, every third month. Then we'll stop. Uh, the lotions, instead of twice a day, they go to once a day. Then once every second day. Then we may stop. 
and then um, you know um, all, I, I will try to taper everything to get them off everything because they may not need it anymore. The condition may be in remission. So we always try to taper. So once I see there's no follicular hyperkeratosis or edema on trichoscopy, once I see that the, the uh, coordinates from outer canthi to hairline, glabella to hairline, are, are staying the same, I start tapering. Now, we, you mentioned pioglitazone before, and, and, and we haven't really discussed it in, in the context of, of, of you know, your, your go-to therapeutic approach, where does that fit in when that patient comes in for the first time? Do you ever reach for it as first line or that's going to be more no, after a time? No, no. I don't use it first line. There is also a black box warning with bladder cancer, which turns patients off. But um, I, I do use it when things aren't working. I'll use 15 to 30 milligrams a day. Do, do you split that dose 15 twice a day or you just give it once a no. day? No. No, it's just 15 milligrams a day, or I'll go to 30 milligrams a day. It comes in 15 or 30 milligram tablets. And and when you do bring this in as part of your armament, if you're going to see an effect from it, when do you anticipate that? And how often do you tend to see a good response from it? Six to eight weeks. And how often do you find that it is helpful? I mean, I've heard a range of from different folks. You know, some people say, if it's going to work, it's going to work great. And that's about maybe 30 to 40% of the time. And then others, it just does nothing. Well, I wouldn't say, uh, no, there's some people where there's a partial response. They feel that it helps, uh, but it's not a total response and a fabulous response. If I feel that there's less hair shedding, uh, there's less inflammation, uh, then I know that, you know, whatever I'm doing is working. Now, usually Actos is being used or, or pioglitazone is being used with other things as well. And sometimes right. it's hard to pinpoint what is working. And then but once I, you know, I'll try everything to save the hair follicles. I mean, this is a trichologic emergency here. Every <laughs> hair that goes, you need a funeral for every hair. Right. <laughs> okay. It's, it's over. Okay. So you want to get on top of this. So I'll do throw find, a lot of things at them. Do you, you know, after doxy, plaquenil, pioglitazone, even now, of course, naltrexone, do you ever find yourself, I know I saw with one case, you use methotrexate. Do you use a lot of immunosuppressants like Celsa, methotrexate for these cases? Yeah, or I, use that's I use them. I use uh, methotrexate. I use Celsept. Um, I find that they don't work. And I must say that um, it, they don't, I, I, we, we recently submitted for publication a 92 uh, case history. Um, it's, it's been accepted to the Blue Journal as a research letter. Um, and we were able to show we were able to stabilize disease in 70%. So 30% we weren't able to, to stabilize it. They simply got worse. So for some people, it just everything you throw at them, it doesn't work. But yes, I use Celsept, use methotrexate, I use Dapstone. I mean, I'll use uh, lots of other immunosuppressants, but I don't find they work so fantastic. And also people are scared of the side effects. Once you mention Celsep, they start talking to their internists, and the, the and, you know the the um, the kidney issue always comes up. Methotrexate, the liver issue always comes up. But I mean, I, I feel comfortable prescribing it, and I monitor the patients. But the patients they get a little nervous when you start mentioning those kinds of drugs. Sure. What about oral retinoids? Um, I've seen in the literature, I've actually tried it a couple of times. It's been hit or miss for me. Um, more often than not, it's acetretin because it's a little easier to use depending on yeah. the patient's sex and age. Um, what has been your experience? 
I only started using it recently, so I can't really comment how well it works. There was a wonderful Polish paper uh, by Lydia Rudnicka's group that showed it worked in 70%, and that was the acetretin. Uh, I think there may be potential there. I'm not sure. I don't have enough experience with it, but I think that's uh, that would be at the bottom of my armamentarium. Um, it wouldn't be necessarily at the top because I'm so used to using my other stuff. But it may it may be something that we may use more and more of. And, and the last modality, which which I only heard of recently um, out of Miami, uh, is using um, uh, eczema light therapy. Um, yeah. Which I, I somewhat have a hard time wrapping my head around how UVB could even penetrate deep enough to really create uh, a meaningful response. But I've tried it in a couple of patients, especially I had one pregnant patient who clearly couldn't been on really anything else. And, and she actually did pretty well with, with uh, eczema. Um, have you had any experience okay, think, with it? Yeah, I do. Um, and I've sent people for eczema laser. I'm not really sure it does anything. Um, there aren't any really good studies. So we can't really say. It does have an anti-inflammatory effect. It may work in some people. And if um, people have, um, you know, insurance for it, and they can go twice uh, a week to somebody who has the laser. Great, I think it's worth. It's a, it's another modality that can be tried. And, and any last words of wisdom for all those out there who, who encounter these patients, and, and certainly many of them are quite difficult. As you, know, you said, you you kind of run through the gamut, you throw the kitchen sink at them, um, and, and it, it does take some time if you even do get a good response. You know, what, as, as, as an expert in this area, what, what is your kind of, you know, lasting message for, for those out there? My lasting message is this. These patients take a lot of time, okay? You need to give them the time. If you are unwilling to give them the time, because a frontal fibrosing alopecia case may take an hour on the first visit. A lichen planopilaris case may take an hour. If you're doing general dermatology in a busy practice, you don't have the hours. But you can do the BOPS, you can get everything prepped for uh, and send them to somebody who knows about hair, who can spend the time with them. Okay, um, and, um, and, and because these patients need time. This is not a five minute visit. This is the first visit is an hour. The second visit is probably gonna be a half hour, especially if it's frontal fibrosing, alopecia, doing all the measurements. If you don't have the equipment, if you don't have the time, then refer to somebody who can give them that time. Excellent words of wisdom. I, as you're saying this, I was thinking back to it, literally a patient yesterday who literally I spent an hour with with lichen planum pilaris. And, and you're right. If you do not give them the time, they feel marginalized and they don't feel confident in the plan. And uh, you know, you definitely could not say any better than you just said it. So right, right on the mark. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Shapiro. This has been so useful and, and enlightening. Uh, and everyone who tuned in, make sure to check out our next edition of the JD Podcast next month. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to EPI Health, the marketers of Nuvale, Citavig, and Benzol HP for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to let them know you enjoyed this podcast.